0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Irish Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Meg Smith, one of the channel's hosts, and today I'll be talking to Stephen Hewer about his new book, Beyond Exclusion in Medieval Ireland, Intersections of Ethnicity, Sex, and Society Under English Law, published just this
1: year by Breppels.
0: Stephen, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. So before we dig into the book, Stephen, uh, would you mind telling us a little bit about yourself?
1: Sure. Yeah, I'm currently a Hume Early Career Fellow at Liverpool, University of Liverpool's Institute of Irish Studies. Before that, I was a Fons Weapon-Shapalik-Onderzouk-Blondren, postdoctoral Onderzoeker at Ghent University in Belgium, and an Irish Research Council postdoctoral fellow at Trinity College Dublin. Uh, my research is on social legal status of minorities, and by minorities, I mean people who are Experiencing colonization, immigrants, uh, women in high medieval Northwest Europe. This research has uh, led me into studying colonial and sexist discourse employed by other scholars in the past and still today when describing so-called medieval Europe. And, you know, if people want to learn more, I have my full CV and publications on my personal website, stephenhewer.com. I have my scholarly articles and public engagement works up there, so it's very easy to access for anyone except my most recent uh, journal article. It's under embargo for six months.
0: Great. Thanks. That's obviously a very uh, pressing area of study. So how did you come to this project in particular? What was kind of the driving question behind the book?
1: The book is a reworked, restructured take of my PhD thesis. Uh, And the reworking I did on my own, just sort of to balance the chapters out, I felt there was sort of a sex, gender issue with how the thesis was, and I said, I can fix this, Uh, and that's sort of how you get the discrimination chapter, which we can come to later, uh, was I took those separately into men and women. I said, let's put these all together to really highlight its women experience it more. We'll get into that later. Um, And I cut some material that you normally would find in a thesis, but not in a book, uh, my analysis of my main sources. And I came to the project just to publish the main findings from the thesis and to have an academic book. So I should probably mention here the, that publication part of the book process, the peer review and all the waiting for peer review and the edits and the copy editing was funded postdoctoral project. I just mentioned the IRC, Research Council, Irish Research Council. And uh, that job gave me a great opportunities, spent my work around Europe right before the pandemic hit. Uh, so thanks, IRC. And the driving question behind the book is how were minorities, like I said, um, referring to ethnicities in the book. Uh, I've, I've later come to not like that term, and sex, gender. Uh, the, those people being uh, not English, uh, who is the colonial uh, culture identity in, in this context, and all women, including English women, were treated socially and legally in medieval English Ireland, my shorthand for the various English colonies in Ireland. Now, obviously, it's not exhausted. Uh, for one, it uh, did not include people from the European subcontinent, such as Lucans, Florentines, of which there were many in Ireland at that time, or from the rest of the world, which there are very few records of. Uh, so these cultural groups, uh, I call ethnicities in the books, uh, it's not perfect. There's the Irish, and the two main groups of Irish are the Gaels and the Aust people, and then groups that include people born in Ireland, uh, sometimes for several generations, three or four or five, and immigrants who all fall under a sort of socio-legal construct of Welsh, Scottish, and then I've got Manx and Hebrideans in there as well. Uh, Now these latter groups, uh, I call the Irish Sea Region ethnicities, uh, and I should note Scottish is not really ethnicity. It's an inclusive identity made up of several groups we might call ethnicities, uh, and that's why I'm trying to move away from the term ethnicity for future writing. and these are the most numerous groups. So that's how they all got included, uh, much more numerous than the Lucans and Florentines. Uh, and also these groups encountered questions and complaints uh, concerning their access to the English colonial courts in Ireland and their ability to hold lands in fee. Uh, so the other main reason the book is not exhaustive to pivot here is the focus is on 1250 to 1320. And that's due to surviving records, uh, also include a few exceptional records so early as 1190 and the latest 1381 the surviving records that I use are mostly court rolls because that is the most likely place for you to find regular medieval people Uh, I did also use some financial records and charters and uh, I'm mentioning surviving several times because some may know you might know it's uh, 30th of June 1922 the record treasury four courts in Dublin blew up 700 years of records are lost The record treasury had been seized by the IRA during the Civil War, and they were still storing their gelignite in there. And uh, some call it an unfortunate fire. The fire came after the gelignite explosion. I think we should always try and not forget that part. Uh, So, due to this explosion of gelignite, the surviving records are mostly transcripts and calendars of the medieval records. Uh, The important difference being transcript maintained the original language, usually Latin. And... uh, but they might be in a different script, while a calendar is an abbreviated translation in modern type. So the majority of the transcripts of court records were made by the Record Commission in 1819 to 1824. And so I I plan to publish sort of a history of prosopography of the Record Commission. I think it was very interesting and just sort of COVID's gotten in the way and finishing the book edits and moving countries, uh, Belgium and Ireland and Belgium and all that, it's gotten in the way. So that's been put on hold and then Hopefully, I can get back to that. And then the other main series is from about 1901. There's a series of calendars were made by the employees of the Public Record Office of Ireland. And these are all calendars. Like I said, they're English translations uh, and they're abbreviated. Details are are taken out. Uh, So most of the court records are not published while the exchequer records, financial records were uh, published as part of just the annual report back to the UK government. Uh, so those are much easier to access. Uh, if anyone interested in financial records, the, the deputy keeper reports, the annual deputy keeper reports for the State Papers of Ireland. Uh, now some scholars have praised these calendars as being more complete than the transcripts from the Record Commission. Uh, the PROI staff made some questionable translations, which we can now not question at all because the originals are destroyed. And since they're only an English translation, we don't know what the original word is, and sometimes we just try and undo the English translation to get back to what was the Latin term, which, reading the book, you know, I do like to point out something that is very important, what was the Latin term used. So, back to the book, looking mostly 1250 to 1320, I searched for non-English people and English women using the royal courts, uh, which is irrefutable proof of free status. This conclusion was previously that Gaelic people could have been personally free but did not have access to the courts, I found a few possible examples of this, and I labeled that unaccepted, uh, to distinguish unfree people from pre- free people without access to the royal courts. Uh, now, Contemporary legal experts, contemporary being medieval, and the English courts in their judgments use the term free to designate people who did have access to the royal courts, especially in Ireland. And this is why we need to be careful here, and I, that's why I'm using unaccepted for free but unfranchised people. I think I use that in the book. Free but unfranchised is important to differentiate from unfree and free and franchised. So, there's at least three broad groups we're looking at there. Uh, now, it's not a book's not a traditional legal history; it's a social history relying on legal records. Uh, so, I'm also looking at charters to and from non-English people and English women, showing us the arguments that these groups could not hold. Free lands in fee are not true because one could not grant away lands that one did not hold in feet in the first place. Uh, so the book does not only explore that, but it is one of the main takeaways and hopefully I haven't gone into too much detail for later questions in my broad summary.
0: No, not at all. I find these discussions of both the source bases, but also the entanglements between the medieval and the modern really fascinating. And of course that goes to show how modern historiography has shaped our understandings, both of these medieval legal records, but also of the sort of broader society that they speak to. And so one of the things that I found really valuable in this book is kind of rolling back all of those centuries of scholarship and starting from the records themselves and trying to sort of move forward. Uh, And of course, doing that, as you say, is very complicated because of all of the various layers of surrogacy that we have in those records. I wanna dig into this question of translations and word choices though, because you give so much thoughtful consideration to how those questions of vocabulary shape our assumptions and our interpretations of these historical actors. So could you talk a little bit more about how you approached choosing translations, choosing vocabulary for these people
1: and these statuses? Yeah, absolutely. I spent a great deal of time reading through some of the greatest theories for me. Uh, studying a colonial situation, most scholars of medieval Ireland agree the English colonized large part of the island of Ireland, but they, they don't seem to engage with post-colonial, decolonial works and lenses. And my biggest influences are Said, Crenshaw, Spivak, Baba, and a bit of Foucault and Derrida. Uh, now the first thing to note is that as many scholars of medieval Ireland love to use the term native, which I'm only going to say here once, uh, just so everyone knows which n-word I'm referring to. Here, in a medieval context, uh, from reading these theorists, it's important to, to take a look at what's the context of this term. So in the medieval context, it means a legally and socially uh, labeled born unfree from the Latin, born unfree person. And in a modern context, is a term of colonial violence employed by European colonists to dehumanize people into what's now called North and South America, India, Africa, et cetera. And so to repeat the N-word while studying medieval English colonization is to repeat and reify the colonial violence and mindset. So there is no context where some scholar can take this term and deploy it to describe the Gaelic people in medieval Ireland without supporting a colonial perspective. Also in the book I mentioned, previous scholars used the term to argue that all Gael's were considered legally unfree. Not just unaccepted, like I mentioned earlier, but unfree by the English colonists in Ireland and their courts. And so while I did find a few naifs, which is perhaps a better translation for nativa and nativus, which most scholars just say nativas, when there was women, where were the women? Uh, Then the N word for nativa, nativa, nativas, it's maybe use naif. Uh, But most scales who appear in the surviving court records uh, were not considered a nativa or nativas. So, I mean, they're in the royal courts and to be able to use it is to be free.
0: Thanks. Like I said, I think this is a really important discussion for, as you say, sort of the contemporary violence that those terms do, but also to how they sort of unconsciously shape our assumptions because, of course, yes, these are specific legal terms that have sort of been lost as we've... Broadened the the scope of that vocabulary. Um, So I was struck as I read through the early chapters of the book um, by the range of participation by free Gaelic men in the courts. So, as you say, we see already early on that you are challenging this question of, uh, I guess, limitations to access to the courts. Um, And as you show us, we see Gaelic men in the courts as plaintiffs, as defendants, as jurors and attorneys, uh, as pledges and warranters, and all kinds of other roles that they're playing in these negotiations. And so that also maybe challenges some longstanding assumptions about access to the courts. Um, Does it also complicate our understanding of society at large in this period?
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's definitely complicating everything, it, it, we, I think we just need to erase the whole binary construct in the first place so that we can get down and dive into the, it's all, it's just complicated. <laughs> so, uh, you know, most of our understanding comes from secondary sources. I think you mentioned earlier, whatever reason fear critiquing a senior scholar, uninterest in that specific topic, admiration for the established narrative, 99% of the secondary sources agree that there was a universal discrimination against the Gaelic Irish. Uh, and that there was this binary of free English and unfree Irish. And like I said earlier, I'm searching through the surviving records for similar clues such as the ones I found uh, uncover this situation of free gaelic men and not just free and that they weren't knaves. They're holding positions of power. There's some that are lords over English tenants. They have English tenants under them in the feudal pyramid Uh, which I know some people don't like feudal but uh, you know, we got to be wary of absolutes. I tell students all the time, always be suspicious if someone says always or never, and then I wait for them to catch that. I just said always.
0: (laughs) So, uh, we see this, like I said, enormous range of roles that Gaelic men are playing in the courts. Um, we also then see a lot of women in the courts and, I was really uh, intrigued by this tension between the legal principles and the practices in the case of women in the courts, right? We see this great diversity of legal strategies employed by women um, often successfully despite a lack of codified legal rights. So how did you go about evaluating which of those cases were exceptional and which might reveal more widespread practices?
1: Well, this is is even more complicated than the, the free Gaelic men because now we're getting into even more wider than just outside just just ireland but outside of ireland medieval europe historiography of sort of this idea of coverture uh now there was i did later find some instances of clear coverture uh, this noble english woman is married her case must be thrown out we got yeah. go. so but let's go back first to you know legal theorists would point out medieval English women did have some codified rights. We just, as 21st century feminists, would not consider these fair or just or equal, but they were codified and they were rights to contemporary legal minds, medieval contemporary minds. These were rights and that they're using the term use. Um, And I'll immediately follow that my own in the book and all my research as I rely on law and practice methodology which means codified rights mean absolutely nothing when powerful can easily dismiss, ignore, or literally delete those rights in a codified sense or not even in a codified sense, just in a single case judgment. If the justice or today a judge says, no, you had rights, but I don't think you deserve rights, bangs the gavel. Your codified rights mean nothing, do they? You're now going to, to jail or being fined or whatever. So yeah, legislation codification of law is, is good for a mental exercise, but I'm looking at people's rights, your, your human rights, law and practice, that was all that matters for, for human rights. So, so in
0: some ways it's not even attention at all then, right? So it's, it's really about the practice.
1: Yeah, well, yeah. So there, but there is a, a tension within this system, the English law, colonial law in Ireland, there is a tension uh, between what they think the law should be. Everyone has, like I was go back to legal theorists, the law in mind. And every juror and every justice has an idea of what the law should be. But then this particular case comes along and they go, Well, I no woman should have rights, but I will make an exception because the this woman actually no, she does deserve rights. This is an exception. But yeah, now we're getting off the ifs and 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 this is getting away from law and practice. But um I will go back to your point, there are more cases, uh, dozens of books could be written just about women in 13th century Ireland, Gaelic Ireland, English Ireland. And I do hope to read those one day because mine are, you know, instances in here are just related to the theme of the book, which is intersections of when women, sex, gender with ethnicity. And so I did have to do English women uh, to show the differences between English men and English women and English women and Gaelic women and Aust women who had never really been mentioned. The word I invented that word had never, they were just Aust men, there were no Aust women. It's amazing how they existed. Uh, But there are so many more cases. If you look at just at a sex gender aspect, there were so many more I couldn't include because the editor said, no, you can't have a 500 page book. Uh, So yeah, I'd love to read five more books about women in 13th century Ireland and comparing instances between the Gaelic, the the Phoenicus is what it's called. People today call it Brehen law. This is another historiographical versus medieval issue, but Phoenicus versus the English colonial system and how was different experiences. And Crenshaw is really important here. That's, I mean, intersectionality is in the title of the book, not just the chapter on women. And it's it's huge here to remember the intersectional ways we're dealing with even a noble English woman could have no choice in her husband, then she comes into court and says, I want to hang this criminal because he committed a crime on my lands. And the court says, yes, yes, that's true. You can't pick your husband and you can't sue without him, but you can hang this man. Um, I will also say, I almost forgot, uh, there's women attorneys and and matronymic surnames, which are two things I try to highlight in the book. And I think uh, listeners should definitely know about these things because you don't hear about them especially like the history of women in medieval Ireland they don't talk about there were women attorneys they came into court and they spoke as an attorney I'm here half of them represented their husband but uh, others didn't they represented other people, women attorneys matronymic is obviously like a patronymic. and I found a very interesting case was there was um William Fitz Agidia Jr. And his mother's in the same case, Egidea De Staunton. So she's got a surname. So his father isn't good enough to name William after, but also he's not William De Staunton. He's William Fitz Agidia. And the junior's even more mind boggling because who was William Fitz Agidia Sr.? His older brother who had died. And so she's like, well, son number two will just be William Jr. <laughs> You know, it couldn't, it, could it possibly have been his father was also William Fitzgitia and Gideon de Staunton married William Fitzgitia Sr. This is, this is to me as the question, I really would love someone to come along. I've I've got the answer. I'd love to hear that.
0: There are so many tantalizing little potential, uh, potential distractions, I guess, but also, you know, stories that deserve a lot of treatment in their own right. So. Uh, women attorneys, women collectors of revenues, there are all these little dimensions that I do, I desperately want books on, so I agree, I would love for someone to come along and write all of these, um, and to pick up all of these threads that you've left, uh, and links to what is obviously very rich source material, Um, so I, I, Think that's another one of the book's great achievements, actually, is just to sort of reveal this enormously rich tapestry uh, that we sometimes forget about because we just sort of assume that all the records are gone.
1: Um, they're, they're not, there's so many records mm-hmm. left. I've got so many other anecdotes I could just about women I could say. Uh, it is definitely, I hope people read the book and go, I could write my whole second book with this as a source material because it's not a political narrative. And people go, It's a history book. Oh, It'll be a political narrative talking about the day Edward I of England was born and the, until the day he died. No, I hate those. I want you to pick up my book and go, ah, I could write my bachelor's and master's thesis and dissertation just with this. And I don't have to fly to Ireland and from wherever you are in the world. Oh, no, we've got a source here. And that's, that's another thing I hope it does is people go, oh, wow, look at all these cases and let's flesh them out and look at more cases to add in. Absolutely.
0: So in those first couple of chapters, you do lay out all of these different dimensions of participation in the courts. But midway through the study period, we do start to see these increasing challenges to the legal status of Gaelic people on the basis of of ethnicity. And it's kind of curious because often those challenges are unsuccessful, but it does seem like they're increasing in frequency. And so this presents another kind of intriguing tension. What do we make
1: of this? That's another central, I mean, it's going back to the central theme of the book is going, okay, previous scholars have mentioned this. I mean, it's not made up. these was medi- medieval words that are recorded in a, in a record. The problem is when they said the English law on Ireland was that only Five bloods was the medieval term uh, of Gaelic nobles could use the English royal courts in Ireland. That was a defensive plea that was used three times out of a 200,000 court cases. Three times the defendant, desperate, threw out something made up and someone heard it. And so then they repeated it in their court case two years later. And someone else heard that, you know, a couple of years later and repeated it, but it didn't work because it was completely made up. And, and what's weird is that I found the first instance, it didn't even say bloods, it was lineages, progenies, the five progenies, and they're like, this is not a thing. The court said, this is not a thing, but, but no one bothered to finish reading the court case that's only three sentences long in Latin to get to the judgment that says no. So then It's like, yeah, but I like this defensive plea. But that's law and practice, is you can't just go, out the defendant claim this. Sure, if you wanted to do a linguistic study and go, okay, so these five defendants all had this conspiracy that they thought if they just repeated the lie enough times, it would work. Sure, you could do that study, but you can't do a legal study and say, yes, five words was definitely codified English law. It was on the statute books. And no, it wasn't. It was completely just made up. So yeah, it it is a tension. That we need to just not only studying medieval history, but reading historiography, be wary of, okay, they said this, what's their source? The source is these three court cases where it was used. But then the judgments prove that no, that was not, I think that's the the main thing we had to take from this.
0: In the case of our other ethnic groups, so the Os people, the Welsh, the Scots, all of these other groups who are also living in Ireland, and as you say, are um, you know, the, the demarcations are maybe less clear than we want to think they are. Um, we see new tensions as we've got political conflicts and warfare maybe altering their legal status. But with such a small number of identifiable cases, how do we make sense of that really fragmentary evidence?
1: Yeah, this is the question I had to ask myself for years. <laughs> is, uh how many cases prove a point with law in action you can just say this one case proves the point in this one situation and then you can move away from that. But I know people are going to say, well, more broadly, what was generally going to happen? Okay, uh, yeah, it's not long practice anymore, but oh, we, 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 we'll generalize. Uh, so I mean, previous scholars take one single case uh, from 1354, I think, and where the jury says, well, yeah, sure, there are five bloods, but he's an O'Neill, which is one of the five, so he can still use the court. The, aha, aha! So in 1169, uh, when the first English uh, come, or 67, the first English come, they brought with them this idea of five bloods. Like, well, how did you just get back 200 years? Uh, but yeah, the the point is the the judgment stating this please is not true. So I'm looking at other cases around the same time, comparison for these Welsh and Scots cases, and looking for, okay, this is comparative law. We've moved away from law and practice. We're getting comparative law. So no, I've, I've just put the cases where our actual status comes up. The Welsh is very problematic because there is the war of Welsh conquest by Edward I, and that's like one of the gaps in our sources. All those years are just a gap. Uh, for court records. So we don't know if at any point Edward sent an order probably in 1278, if this is all hypothetical, that sent an order in 1278, okay, all Welsh people uh, will be deceased, their lands will be taken away by a royal bailiff, you know, and they'll be locked a prison, because he did send he did send in, in 1296 or 7, supposedly, an order that all Scots were to be arrested. So maybe he also sent... The problem is we don't have one. So we have to guess, And the, but the records as we currently have them, there wasn't a general record to arrest all Welsh people. And then we do have a record, it's a financial record, that there were 15, I think, Welsh mercenaries, and they had an English, I don't know, officer, sergeant, captain, whatever you want to call them, basically a handler. And they were paid quite well. They came over on a boat. And this, again, I think his name was John De Chester. And they came over John de Chester and they were just, I mean, you could do a movie about this. And I think there's been a movie, not about this specifically, but basically it's 15 Welsh mercenaries come over from Wales and they're just paid to go around, uh, you know, to fight against Gaelic people who resisted English colonies, colonization of Ireland. Uh, And they were there for years under John de Chester and he was paid well. And all the Welsh men were paid well to just go around and be mercenaries, 40 English, uh, and, and so you, you, that is something you have to take into context when looking for cases of, of Welsh people for what's their status. But then we also down have, and down in Waterford, Waterford uh, the records of Welsh patas, which is, I mentioned in the beginning of the book, patas is not a legal thing, but it, it's only mentioned in financial records uh, as a tenurial designator. And in England at that time, you could hold... The uh, Llanish lands and be a free person, uh, but if you're called a Llan, you're a Llan, which is different than a native, Uh, And but there's Welsh vitas, which means they're holding in Battagio, uh, which to get a bit technical here, is that they, they do sort of imply this is unfreedom. But could they still use the royal courts because they said in. Now, much later, about sixty years later, they said, "Yeah, this man is Welsh, and therefore he can use the royal courts." So we have no idea; we just have a record that they existed. Welsh betas existed, and in every other situation, a beta can't use the royal courts except when an Englishman is holding land. So it's yeah, we're getting into complicated ideas of thirteenth century unfreedom. How does that work? And it shifts. And like I said, the legal system. We need to look at it with law and practice because it's dynamic. It can shift, it can move. They can just make things up. As I say in the uh, clerics chapter, they can just make up a rule on the spot. Uh, so we've got to be careful with that. But I hopefully, I've done it now. Maybe some day, some descendant of some oppressive noble kept a secret role in a wall and they find it and they'll come forward and we, with the role of the Welsh people of Ireland. And I'll totally disprove the six cases that I have, but I will Dream, honestly. <laughs> please, please bring forward the hidden roles you've got in your castles, you know, or maybe you're the descendant of a court clerk who stole a role in 1810, some of the missing roles from the Records Commission. I'd love to read those, so please bring them forward.
0: It's definitely, though, speaks to the importance of putting these legal records within their broader social contexts. Um, and definitely... Uh, taking that holistic approach to legal history as social and political history. So transitioning then from these sort of ethnic groups into different kinds of law, um, I found your discussion of the relationship between ethnicity and criminal law really exciting because along with overturning a lot of established assumptions about the legal protections or lack thereof, for Gales. You also introduce us again to some fascinating characters. Uh, And so I'd love to hear more about Jeffrey O'Farrell and maybe what his case tells us about ethnicity and criminal law.
1: Ah, he's a great story. And I did research him a bit more after the book was done. And I've got a History Ireland magazine article coming out, hopefully later this year. It's all done. He just hasn't told me when. Uh, But Tommy, please get that out. Uh, So Jeffrey O'Farrell was a the Taoiseach of Anfilly, uh, which some people call Longford. There's no Longford in 1290. So he's definitely Taoiseach of Anfilly, uh, which is a region just east of Um uh, And it's, yeah, he does some amazing things. Uh, first of all, he appears in the record probably as a late teenager, early 20s. He's not Taoiseach. His father's still alive, uh, who I, later... Found uh, some records on his father, and that'll be in the History Island article. Uh, but he he shows up by he's killing English knights, and uh, and someone said yes, uh, killed English knights uh, in a war, but he's brought into criminal court, and we know that this is definitely considered the the crime of homicide and and not war slang because we've got royal letters saying. No, this happened in war. You cannot sue someone for something that happens in war. So they thought this was, oh, these knights are not going to battle. He just caught them off guard drinking at the river and killed all of them. And there's a lot of them. There's one record that names them all. And it's a it's a lot. So he's he's got basically his um his, his clientage is uh, followers. Uh, it's hard to translate. Technical uh, Gaelic law terms here you often, know, because I, yeah. So basically, his followers, his group, and he kills them all in uh, 1271. But the more surprising part is that their brother, who wasn't there on the day, uh, then sort of grants him land and becomes his attorney in court. This is just mind blowing. You killed my two younger brothers, so I'm now going to be uh, grant you some lands and be your attorney. So you don't have to physically come into court. I'll represent you in court. And does go, so, hey, you took cattle uh, from my man, Jeffrey. You must give them back. And he's like, no, Jeffrey's an outlaw. No, he's not. He's not an outlaw. Yep. Jeffrey's cow is cows back. He's like, this is the guy who killed your brothers. Nope. Nope. He's my man now, and, and I will defend him in court. And uh, yeah, they killed some Devernants and some Theobald. <laughs> But then 20 years later, he kills another English knight, John de la Mer, and William de la Mer is the son of John, grants land to Geoffrey again. He just goes around killing English lords and their relatives, like, well, I guess you, I have to grant you some land now. I wonder if that points us then to,
0: um, you know, sort of burgeoning internecine conflicts
1: within these families. I think it more was it was a region that they couldn't muster a, an army big enough to go in and and conquer him because he clearly had his own army if we can use a modern term for it his followers he had his own army uh and local english settlers colonists there they weren't strong enough to resist him and the dublin either they didn't have the money or the desire to try and muster something big enough to go in there and stop him. Uh, so for, what is it, from 1271 to 1317, he just does whatever he wants. And then a year before he dies in 1318, uh, Mortimer shows up as the locum tenens Regis, the placeholder of the King of England. And he does go with an army through there. And Geoffrey finally says, submits to peace, it says. And it, it doesn't say anything more like if you had to give other cattle or anything but uh he's an old man in his 60s at this point at least uh and he probably just said yeah i'm sorry and Mortimer said okay don't do it again you're an old man and that's about it yeah so for what almost 50 years he just ran around uh west uh Meath and uh, the east part of conic did just do what he wanted so yeah he's fascinating <laughs>
0: He is fascinating and uh, and does again kind of call into question just to what degree, I guess, uh, the legal system privileged or did not privilege ethnic status. Your discussion of ethnicity and the legal status of clergy raises some similar questions and some equally intriguing characters. Uh, I was especially interested in Archbishop McCarville's attempts to weaponize his legal privilege to both abuse his tenants and maybe impose religious reform. What does his case tell us about the legal position of the clergy, um, especially the Gaelic clergy?
1: Yeah, the cases with clergy, especially prelates. Uh, we, our main conclusion we need to take from McCarroll and other Gaelic prelates is that uh, people, especially men with extreme power, should never be assumed to be benevolent. But also that a powerful man can use his power to hurt some people and help others, as McCarwell did with his friends and relatives. He's working to protect them while he's also killing English tenants on his own lands. So, yeah, he's, he's compl- we're getting back, it's complicated. Uh, we should perhaps separate prelates from other Gaelic clergy the lowest levels of the church, because you read they felt the need to purchase letters of protection. Uh, while the prelates, we've got the famous case of Stephen O'Brachan uh, of Cashel, 1295, he's charged with a criminal charge and he walks into the criminal court and says, I refuse to answer as my privilege as an Archbishop of Cashel. I refuse. And any other person in English law, the Count of Ulster himself couldn't do that. They'd be put into a prison on the diet, which was old bread and bad water on opposite days. So you never got food or water on the same day. And he just walked in, and he refused to answer the charge. So the jury reported he's completely innocent and the court let him go. And I suspect the court had some jury tampering going on here, but I, I've got no proof of that, but I'd love to get some proof because that sounds to me, like, I refused it. Oh, well the jury says he's totally innocent. You don't get brought up on criminal charge just by a rumor. And the the system, the English law system, is they would have to not quite as complicated as today, but basically uh someone comes and they claim there's a charge, and then there's sort of not quite a grand jury. Well, sometimes there was a grand jury. So that's where the grand jury today comes from. But you had yeah, to get uh a criminal charge brought. It wasn't just you walked in and said, I'd like to have this person prosecuted for theft, please. No, it was. So he he didn't get to that point where he's brought physically forced to come into court and answer a criminal charge without them having some good evidence that it happened. But uh, yeah, it's just like, I'm an archbishop. We can't stop him.
0: What a life. So over the course of the book, you describe all of these court cases and offer us some really, um, some really significant conclusions about the relationship between ethnicity and legal status and over again overturning and challenging uh some pretty long-standing scholarship but of course you also are giving us these really human personal moments um is there a case that especially especially resonated with you either Why? for speaking to those sort of big conclusions or
1: because of those very sort of human moments no no there's, there's loads uh, that i found it's amazing and I'm, how did no one Across, I didn't. I wasn't the first person to look at the court rules, but just I've never read about these because I think they're just regular people. If they're not a bishop, archbishop, or count, no one seems to care. (laughs) But I find one, I'll I'll start with one interesting example going back to women. It was um, Constance, the wife of Henry Goldberry. That's her only name that we've got for her. And her and Henry and a couple other people are sued. And she comes into court with Henry, and they all say they're there. And the plaintiff alleges, blah, blah, blah. Constance then alone, not without Henry Goldberry, she answers. She's like, I'm the tenant for this 75% of the lands. And that Peter boy over there, he can answer for his 25%. Uh, so we've got other scholars speculate Constance might've actually spoken in court, but instead through an attorney on her behalf. And now my experience of records from English Ireland, usually record this if an attorney did speak instead of the actual person recorded saying they spoke. But it, it really doesn't matter either way because Nobles never actually it says the Count Ulster spoke. He didn't. He was always through. He had 17 attorneys. Legally, Constance replied as defendant and not Henry Goldberry uh, or his attorney through Yusyuk right of the wife. She replied and she said, this is my land. I hold it. Not... Henry, on my behalf, holds this land. Or not we. Sometimes you find married couples and they say we hold this land when it's the wife's land. And the husband replies for both and says we hold this land. No, she said I hold this land. And I think that's really, I think very interesting because it's upsetting the, the traditional use of Soros historiographical conclusion. Um, as others, Isabel, wife of Roger Danile, denial, uh, she received a grant of a house in County Cork, sole the term used, that is a loan. Not Roger and Isabel together received it. She was granted a house. And it, so lots of cases like that. Other cases, like Roger O'Bellin, uh, he sues the heirs of his infioffer. He was infioffed by an Englishman. Of, not a huge holding, some land, uh, but someone tried to say, no, that's not your land. He had to sue the heirs to get a warranty. Hey, your father gave me these lands. You must come and warranty. He then loses the case because he misspelled the land. And this was a technicality. He, if he had the money, he could buy another writ and sue. But just feel so bad because they're like, no, you're not unfree. This is probably your land. But you got one letter off in a time when spelling is not concrete. And people really gloss over this fact that misspelling something in a time when spelling is not set is just crazy. And the court does this. It's like, no, you've misspelled that. You're like, but nothing selling the spelling's not set. <laughs> that is wild.
0: I think of all the spellings I've encountered, uh, and you know, trying to sound out absurd. <laughs> Absurd phonetic spellings of things,
1: um, yeah. But I do have one one final story I want to mm-hmm. talk about. Is you probably read Elena Macotar? She rented lands to a very powerful English lord called Edmund Lebaultier, eh, and then kicked him off the lands shortly afterwards. And his English lord he had to wait until he was appointed temporary chief justice of English Ireland to sue her in the chief justice court, which he was presiding over. There was nothing he could do to stop this Ost woman from whatever she wanted. She was like, I do what I want. And the only time he was able to to sue her for kicking him off lands during his lease was when he was chief justice. He wasn't powerful enough on his own. He needed the full weight of the colony behind him to take on this one woman in Cashel. I'll I'll end it there.
0: That's a great place to end because it does bring us back around to the, the strategies of negotiation that people are employing, you know, regardless of to what degree they are or are not privileged within this legal system, um, they are, you know, employing every strategy they have at their disposal and sometimes creating new ones uh, to to claim authority or to defend their position. Um, and so I think that's a really great place to, to leave this. Uh, I know I've taken up a lot of your time, but before I let you go, I do ask I want to ask one more question, which is what you're working on now.
1: Oh yeah, right now I am working on uh, people from the Low Countries who immigrated to England in the 12th century and descendants of people who earlier immigrated, and what is their socio-legal status? And then after I've done with that study, I'm going to compare them to the colonial situation in English Ireland, how the Gaels were treated because uh, I think there's a very interesting thing going here. One that no one would ever have, have thought to compare Flemings and Brabanters to uh, the Gaelic Irish. But the problem is English chroniclers in the 12th and 13th century say the same thing of these violent, inferior people. They're they're inferior to the English, but they're more violent and stronger than us. Like, wait, wait, are they what's going on here? But you use the exact same words for these two different, very different situations. So I want to really dive into that and go, why are they using, is there an influence going on here? I mean, th- they're not saying that about everyone else. Uh, I mean, everyone else is inferior because they're English, and I they think they're, they're great, but they, they're not saying this exact inferior but more violent than the English. So I want to really dive into that. But, so, but first, I've got to establish a, a baseline of well, how were people from Hainault and St. Paul and Brabant and Queens, well, there's all these counties, people usually just say, oh, they're all Flemish. And it's like, well, they're they're not, but they're not. So that's what I'm currently working on is separating out people from Boulogne and St. Paul from Flemings, from Hainault, from Brabanters.
0: That sounds like a great project and like a really interesting continuation of some of the themes from Beyond Exclusion. Um, Thanks so much for being on the show today, Stephen. I've really enjoyed our conversation.
1: Take
0: care.